uh, last time I was here was uh, February 1985, 18 years ago, and I was one of the guys that was chosen to give my testimony, kind of like uh, Robert did this morning. And uh, Robert, after after, eight, after you start with the testimony, about 18 years later, they get you to come back and speak. So get ready. But it's an amazing privilege for me and uh, just overwhelming to be sandwiched between Gail Jackson and Walt Hendrickson. That's an amazing thing. Uh, I talked about how the Lord had called me to do lay ministry in Hong Kong at that uh, Lost Valley retreat. I gave a testimony. And uh, as you know, Hong Kong was getting ready to be absorbed into China. Hong Kong people have been praying for an open door in China, but... Typical God, the door opens and closes behind them. And uh, I think they said, well, we didn't really mean it like that, Lord, but... And all of a sudden, all the vocational Christian workers were hearing from God to move to the United States. And uh, there was a major exodus. And uh, but the lay people were realizing the ball's with us. And uh, we don't know what it's going to be like after communist rule, but the layman was gearing up. They were getting in huddles and meetings, and they decided that uh, we don't know what it's going to be like if they close the churches, they put all the pastors in jail, and uh, you could not meet like this. Is, uh, they get nervous when there's a big gathering or a meeting, that uh, we will pick it up for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they got, they got serious about being workmen for Christ, I tell you. And I came over there and heard about that vision. Hong Kong would be like a Trojan horse. Bring it inside the gates. Stuffed with the goodies of capitalism. Inside that horse. Be lethal soldiers. Soldiers who can function without institutional support. And uh, know how to take a man for Christ. And uh, I joined that movement. And they said, when you come over here, you come over for good. And, of course, we didn't know what it was going to be like. We, we went on back. Uh, we were there for three days shy of 17 years. And now I'm back as the first executive director of the Chinese Entrepreneur Association. But in preparation for that trip, God somehow arranged it for, I, for me to come to Colorado Springs. Preparation for that. I met Walt Hendrickson at Dallas Seminary. The minute I shook his hand, my life changed. And uh, he invited me to come to Colorado Springs to meet men, see the ministry. Just real casual about it. I said, sure, I'll see the ministry. I've seen a lot of ministry. Met guys like Charles Rowland. I was in a Bible study with Charles Rowland. And, and uh, last time I was up at the ranch, I was roommates with Don Whaley and Jack Howard. Jack Howard's boys, uh, John, good buddy of my son. Lynn Little, Lon Lutze, Jim Maxwell, Bob Foster Jr., Ed Turley, John Ball. Just a rich, rich group of guys that um, showed me the, uh, the ministry. That's fair to say that I, I think I learned more. No, I think I learned more about the ministry from one year at Colorado Springs than my four years at Dallas Seminary. 
Don't tell him I said that, but that's what I think. I never knew that there's so much ministry going on outside the walls of a church. I mean, so much going on. I never knew that ministry would go on outside the walls of a church. And, of course, I traveled with Walt a lot and met pockets of guys just like here, just all over the country, pockets of guys uh, all over Walt, helping them. Just amazing. Of course, everybody... Really looks up the wall. Everybody, the talk was, you know, you know, whether or not really does Walt have any chinks in his armor? And there's always the debate: does he have it? We can't see it, but not until he asked me to travel with him. And I was showing up with him. Did people realize that? Yes, he, he did have a chink in his armor. <laughs> Sorry, sir. My kids say, before I came back to the States, my kids warned me, Dad, you're so politically incorrect. You will not last. You've been out in Hong Kong, and you are just such a dinosaur. But I just had to do that. That's that. Right here we could do that. Here the irony is, started out as a layman, working at Goldman Sachs. A lot of high tension, compartmentalizing my job. Nine to five, Monday through Friday, a lot of tension. Hard to be a Christian. Go to church, be a church guy, be an elder, be a, uh, active in my church. Then go back to work, back and forth, a lot of tension. So I decided I'm going to go to seminary. And tension dissipated. It was gone. Everybody patting you on the back. Boy, you're so spiritual. You're going to go into the ministry. And so there's no tension. Then I go through four years of seminary, and I meet Walt Hendrickson right toward the end. And then attention came back. <laughs> he says, you know, you could be a layman. Layman do ministry better than some of these BCWs. Come up here with Colorado Springs. Take a look at it. So, uh, it's money. I go to seminary to become a vocational Christian worker. Come up here and go back to be a layman, do ministry in Hong Kong, put into practice in Hong Kong what I learned in Colorado Springs. Now I'm back as a VCW. I'm all screwed up, but at least there's no tension. I'm here at Lost Valley Ranch. I came to know the Lord because of a failed marriage, and uh, I was going into the Army during the Vietnam War period, and uh, I was at UCLA, and, uh, and I graduated from Berkeley. I crammed four years into five. <laughs> but that was stupid in those days, because as soon as you did that, you did not keep on sk schedule. You suddenly got a letter saying you have moved from a 1S classification to a 1A, and 1A meant you could die. So I jumped into ROTC, became 1D, fiddled around with that, and all of a sudden it was real. I was actually in the Army. And uh, I got married nine days before I went overseas to Germany. And we were stripped of our culture, stripped of our community and all of our friends. And I'm in the Army, and being uh, 
we were just not a good fit. We were so different. And what my wife saw as a fun-loving, great guy turned into pretty much of an irresponsible baby. And I saw her and her as someone very critical. We were, we were just not getting along. And, of course, uh, the, ti the time was a pretty tense time for the country. And all the guys around me had come back from Nam and just talking about killing gooks and Nam all the time. I looked in the mirror and I said, hey, wait a minute, I'm a gook. <laughs> so I wasn't fitting in too well. And um, my, life, my, just, my life collapsed. My wife says, I'm going home. Did not like the Army. Yeah, the uh, Department of Defense, a guy from Opal, forgot what Opal meant, but came over to see me about my career. I said, I want, the ar I want out of this Army right now. I'm going to stand on your desk right now, take my pants off, and pee on your desk. <laughs> That's what I said to him. I'm going to pee on your desk if you don't let me out of this Army. Any, other, any way you can. I'll take a dishonorable discharge here. And that's when I met uh, June and David Otis. He, he, a guy from Kentucky, married a Japanese-American girl from California. Everybody around there thought my wife was his wife, and his wife was my wife. You know, we all look alike, and so... Uh, <laughs> so we thought we'd just get together for dinner. They invited us over as a lasagna. They started sharing Christ with us going, oh, no, what is this, you know? And uh, my wife was starting to listen, and they were sharing just their new relationship in Christ. They were new Christians. And because my wife actually asked them, you know, what is it about your life? You just seem so different from everybody else. They said, we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I remember my wife said, what else? What else? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, she was really eating it up. I'm sitting there rolling my eyes. And said, this is... I've heard this so many times. I just, I got to get out of here. I'm just so sick of this. And uh, they invited us to church on the economy off base. There's a little Baptist church. And I remember the pastor, Bob Ferguson, gave an altar call. I don't know if you've ever been through a Baptist altar call, but those things are wicked. <laughs> Let's sing another verse of Just As I Am. Just as I am. And all of a sudden, my wife gets up. I go, oh, no. <laughs> she goes up there. Ferguson goes, is there anybody else out there? Let's sing another verse of Just As I Am. <laughs> another one. Three or four verses. I'm just saying, I'm going to nail my butt to the seat. I am not. Well, there's only 37 people in the church. Who are they singing this for, anyway? <laughs> I'm at the... I'm a Chinese guy, I'm in Southern Baptist Church, trying to fit in, I'm just keeping myself really not. <laughs> anyway, I, uh, I was watching my wife, she was, she was changing and uh, things were different, I was just watching it. And uh, <coughs> I can hardly get through this without getting hit by the love of God, but... Uh, uh, anyway, get out of the coffee house. It's a German coffee, uh, concern. And, and uh, 
uh, I'm a big-time lieutenant, so I don't want to get too friendly with these guys, but just the love of Christ is in that coffee house. And anyway, I, I capitulated. And uh, as, as Gail says, you know, it's just the first step. You started. Anyway, I just hung around a lot there. We started sharing Christ. It's like natural. I think that's, that's what got me going. Right away, uh, every night uh, after I accepted Christ, gee, I just got into it, started sharing it with other soldiers. And uh, yeah, this gave me a heart for evangelism, I guess. What am I doing wrong here? Anyway, my we got these wedding pictures, and my my wife shows uh, her our wedding pictures off to her. So one one day her Sunday school class came over to looking at her picture. She pointed to the me in the wedding picture, and they said, "Who's that?" My wife says, "That's my first husband." You know, because I was uh, 127 pounds at that time, and you know, after becoming Christian, I always say the Holy Spirit weighs 50 pounds. <laughs> so, but anyway, that, that's a good a good description. That was her first husband. The difference in our marriage is night and day in terms of what uh, Jesus Christ can do. And I like to think of it. I look at that picture as this skinny guy smiling going into absolute hell his whole world is going to cave in he's standing there like a dork just smiling away anyway that was me I've been assigned by Winston to talk this morning on evangelism it's a, it's a hard subject to teach I mean it's like teaching windsurfing or snowboarding or juggling it's a lot easier just to take you out and we do it but, uh, you know, and the stuff is, uh, there's some pointers that can be given. And everybody has their own different way of doing it. So, I mean, it can get boring at times. But I thought about it, and I guess as our speakers have been talking, and Gail and Winston, really it's evangelism as a lifestyle. It's evangelism that takes you over. It's evangelism where you think, you breathe, get up in the morning, on your mind all the time. It takes your life over. This is a conference about being a workman, one who's able to handle accurately the Word of God. Well, I don't think there's any other more important subject than this one. Part of the E squared, it's the E. Evangelism. This is what it's all about. This is what it means to be a workman. Is it not? To be a functioning workman. Someone who's ready to go out there and work. You must know how to present the gospel. You must be willing to do that. You must know what it takes to lead someone to Jesus Christ, just in case you get asked. And, of course, it always involves handling the word. A harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. You must prepare yourself now to become an approved workman for God. Let's, let's open this up with a word of prayer. Lord, I dedicate this to you. It's only you, Lord. Only you. None of us. To the degree that uh, you have uh, brought us here, 
through these 18 years, it's just mind-boggling to me. Uh, the richness of what you have done in our lives and the privilege you give us in evangelism. Oh, Lord, uh, we, we ask for your help. Can't be man's words. Can't, this, these are your concepts. Uh, you can't do anything. So call on your name. And thank you for, for gathering us here. In Jesus' name, amen. I've got my, uh, my talk, and I remember it by MGM. I'm going to go over three things. And MGM, our first is know the model, M, and then know the goal, G. And then I want to talk about the methodology. We're going from the macro to the micro, down to methodology, MGM. Model is Jesus. The best model for personal evangelism is Jesus. You know, there are many ways God could have chosen to reach the world. He could have used signs and wonders. I mean, he could have put on a big forest fire. He could have stopped the sun, stopped the moon. He could have opened the skies. He could have sent angels. He used Jesus. I mean, we think of the 12 disciples, but really it started with one man, Jesus. We chose to reach humanity through a human. Jesus Christ, the perfect man. This is God's plan. And Jesus himself said at the end, just as the Father had sent him into the world, so he is also sending us. John 17, 18. How did God send Jesus? His son became flesh. He became one of us. He dwelt among us. Therefore, when it comes to evangelism, we don't have to worry about our humanity. God's purpose is to reach the world through frail humanity, through frail humans. It's amazing how it works. Actually, if you get too well-trained and too slick, you can be a turnoff. I know there's a church that, uh, I know Gail's been, Gail Jackson's been working on humility. He's so talented in the way he is. So he really worked on it. And there's a church that gave him a medal for humility. And they had to take it away from him when he started wearing it. <laughs> so you don't have to worry about getting too good. So Jesus became one of us to reach us. So my principle is we too, we need to become like the world to reach the world. And is that biblical? 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23 is my favorite passage on this. 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. I'm uh, going to read it because I uh, am... Uh, I want to speed this up. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I may by, by all means save some. And I do all the things for the sake of the gospel, 
that I may become a fellow partaker of it. That's, that's the passage. And I like the emphasis on win. Everything he does is to win people. That is the heart for evangelism. We become like them to win them. Now, I don't mean that we become like them in every way, but in every way without compromising, every way without dipping into sin. I mean, I go to bars with people, play golf with them, smoke cigars with them. Jesus was like us, but he was very different. That's an important thing to know. He was like us. He's very different. So how did Jesus relate to people? First, by his radical identification. After he got that established. Second, by his radical difference. First, ID, and then DI. First, by identifying with him, then through his difference. He dined with tax collectors, touched the lepers, spoke to prostitutes. He identified with them. Then, by his difference, I mean, he was God. All of a sudden, these guys realized that, whoops, this guy's different. He was separate. Now, Jesus seemed to respond to people by noticing first what they had in common, and then the context of those similarities. Bingo, the Jesus difference really started coming out. First, people saw that difference, and then they saw and identified with him, and then they saw the differences. And God's strategy has not changed. We use the same strategy. It's funny, after a while, many Christians cannot relate to non-Christians. And we need to keep in it. In Hong Kong, I've been able to keep up by talking about investments, keeping up with the politics, play poker with them, smoke cigars with them, sat in the bars with them, not the strip bars, the bars, play golf with them. And, and to think, I mean, he could use great power, blow their minds, get people on their knees, but he chooses people. There's no other plan, no other way. And I think it's a little risky to choose people like us. But in actuality, when you think about it, there's a lot of genius to this plan. A lot of genius. So the two words that characterize Jesus are his openness and his identification. I mean, as far as openness, he's a listener. That's all, sometimes it's all it takes to do evangelism, be a listener. He was transparent. He related to little people. He's reachable. Touched lepers. Let the children come to him. And then his identification. He became flesh. He was hungry, tired. He was sweated. He wobbled in his faith, just like us. He ate with sinners. He understood our needs. He empathized. That's, uh, that's identification. In Hong Kong, I, I tried to main contact, re, uh, maintain contact, and I, I had a group. For 14 of my 17 years there, I got into a poker group, uh, about 10 tycoons, and every night, eight of the 10 get gathered every Friday night, once a week, the top uh, club in town, the country club. It's called the Hong Kong Club. We played poker and talked politics and a lot of local gossip, stock market, sports. It's a classic pagan group, just classic. And sometimes I'd get uncomfortable with them. They have these parties and a transvestite show up to dance and that's a little uncomfortable for me. Sometimes I get too comfortable with them and uh, I'd go back and repent and realize it. Very tough stuff. 
but that's the principle of identification. And uh, I became friends to most, most of them, just because I'm a listener. Most, people, most men don't have friends. We also played golf together. I'm not very good, but I can wager a, wager a buck or two on Texas Scramble. And, uh, and when we play golf, a lot of times there's, there's apri-golf. Apri-golf in, uh, in Macau's where you go to these clubs and uh, the Eastern European women there is, is stocked with some very beautiful women. And uh, I just come back on the ferry alone. And now they're noticing my difference. So what's the problem? I said, well, I, I, I'm not arguing with how attractive this is. I just can't afford it not that expensive you know we'll help you I said no I no I mean I, I what I mean by that is I just I just cannot afford what I will lose in eternity just for this little bit of fun it's great but I, I just think it'll cost me too much boy that just sits in their crawl that little difference and it's great it's going to cost me it's going to cost you too he says yeah right no well, we'll see when we get there. The difference does bother. The principle is we must learn to relate to people transparently and genuinely. We must be real. We must be open. We must identify with people. This is the model for having a heart for evangelism. I mean, Jesus, when you think about it, Jesus was a layman. He was not a vocational Christian worker. When he was on earth, he functioned like a layman. He was a people person. He enjoyed going to parties, having dinner with people, going to weddings. He took people along with him. He established intimacy very quickly. He was compassionate. He was caring. He served people. He washed their feet, cooked their meals, visited the sick. He was approachable. Children loved him. In contrast, the holy men of his day were not approachable. They were not. My point is, if the Son of God could leave the security of heaven to come to earth to show us what evangelism is about, well, why can't we leave the comfort of our middle-class lives to reach people for whom Christ died? And we cross-pollinate in our ministry methods. And some of you are going down to New Mexico, I know. It's powerful stuff but we need to go out there do this job. Lifestyle evangelism. Lifestyle. It's relating to people the way Jesus did. And that's why evangelism is a layman's job. It's not the professional's job. I mean, do we believe this? I know in the Chinese churches, the problem is that the Chinese families, they, want to, they, they bring a non-Christian to church to get him converted. They don't, just don't think it's their job. And why is that, I thought? Is it because of not enough knowledge? Well, is that what evangelism is about? Do you have to have so much knowledge? Do you have to go to seminary before you do this? I mean, effectiveness in witnessing is not about knowledge. It's about conviction. And it's powered by love. Uh, some people think, well, I'm not good enough. I'm really not an example of a Christian. Again, remember, no one is looking for goody-goodies. No one is looking for perfection, just looking for reality. And besides, when a Chinese pastor, when he's good, everybody thinks, well, what's what we pay him for? 
He's paid to be good. When a layman is good, he's good for nothing. <laughs> Some people think, well, maybe we don't have enough training. We need more training. Effectiveness, as we heard from Gail Jackson, just being a witness. That's all it is. So, listen, guys, I don't know what happened. All I know is once I was blind, now I can see. That was the first real power encounter in evangelism recorded in the Bible. Once I was blind, now I can see. And when the layman experiences the joy of seeing his friend converted, finding the reality of the Lord, I mean, he gets hooked. I mean, that's how you get a heart for evangelism. You get a taste of it. It's like a drug. There's no other plan. I mean, you think about yourself. How did you come to Christ? Uh, last time we did a little survey, just a quick three questions, little three kind of questions. Think about who was the main influence in your life. What was the primary force in your life that brought you to Christ? I mean, it could be a, uh, an evangelistic crusade. Billy Graham, Luis Palau. Let me ask you to stand up. If you, if the primary influence in your life that brought you to Jesus Christ, made you Christian, was going to a crusade or a guy on television or whatever, uh, even, even reading, reading a book by yourself, as Robert said, could you please stand up? Okay, second, if the primary influence is a vocational Christian worker, your pastor sat with you, led you to Christ, stay, stay standing. Stay standing. Pastor, uh, a vocation, uh, maybe a, 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 an university guy, maybe a navigator, a, a full-time Christian staff worker, that's the number one influence that brought you to Christ. Stand up, please. Okay, then the third category, thank you. Third, stay standing. Third category, it's the number one influence that brought you to Jesus Christ is a layman, a mom, grandmother, a neighbor, buddy in school, somebody at work. That was the number one influence, stand up. Okay. Thank you very much. Oh, I forgot something, did I? Okay. Well, I'm talking about trying to rank it, but you're right. I mean, that's a good point. It's really all of the above in a sense. But, you know, I first saw this done with a room of 4,500 Christian workers. You say, well, this is Colorado Springs. This is a hotbed for lay work. But uh, I saw this. I saw this. 4,500 people in the Lausanne conference. They're all Christian workers. And when the first one came up, there's like 200 people stood up. It's 4,500. Then the next time, there's like another 500. And then 4,000 people stood up when he asked them. It was a layman. The primary influence. And the point is that it's obvious. I mean, I rest my case. If most people here were influenced largely by the layman, I mean, how can any of us think that we're not significant? How can any of us think that we're not the primary instrument, the primary instrument for God to reach the world? It's on us. That's why we're workmen. Now, let me talk about the process of evangelism. I just talked about the model, the process. The principle here is that the layman really is the most effective instrument for God and, you, and by God's design because evangelism is a process, it's not an event. 
because it's processed, that's why it's the layman. And this has helped me the most, and it's impacted my approach to evangelism. And it helps me see myself realistically. It's just, I'm just a piece of the action. And we should take a long-term view, not a short-term view. Now, we have in our booklets, you know, little Peace with God pamphlets and stuff, and, you know, and uh, Roman Road. I mean, and in a sense, I want to show a contrast to that. It's short-term. And, and like to let you see a long-term view of this. In Walt Hendricks' book, Layman Look Up, uh, he maintains that actually, as you say, we are a product of a multiplicity of influences. I mean, you might have a grandmother praying for you. You might have gone to vocation, vacation Bible school. You might have uh, been in young life, high school. Then in college, you met the navigators or intervarsity and and uh, now, you're, now you're sitting in a great church here in the Bible. You come to conference like this. I mean, we really are a product of a multiplicity of influences. And these influences all have been orchestrated by God, a God that loves us personally and brings people into our lives to bring us to Him. So to be a part of this ministry is critical that we have to see ourselves just a piece of the action. And I, the best illustration I have as in, in our home, and many of you have been in our home, I, we have this uh, a, uh, antique scale that we picked up in Germany, a German scale. It's really got this complicated mechanism. It's not that complicated. Two platforms. It comes with a set of weights. And what we do, the kids would put a big weight on here, and then they start picking up weights and, and adding it to this side. And you just put on it, and then until it gets to the point where that thing will tip. Sometimes they'd like to get it just right so that it will just hold it right in the middle. And the question is, which weight was responsible for tipping that scale? I mean, was it the last one? I mean, if that's true, the last one's the one that tips it, can we take away the rest of the weights and just tip it with one? No. Now, each stone is an important part of that process. Each weight is important. But who is to say that any weight is any more important or less important than another? Billy Graham, I mean, he's a big weight. He comes to town, poof, everything just tips, you know. But in reality, you know, reality, he's a small weight. Comes in at the end, tips the balance. So when I see people going forward in the Billy Graham crusade, I see someone who is a product of a multiplicity of influences. Most of those influences are laymen, lay people, not just the magic of one man. The guy that uh, many of you, John ha uh, Watkins in Beijing introduced me to a guy, uh, did some work for me. His name is Mr. X. Uh, he uh, was a guy that's on the make in China, just wanted to be near Americans, got himself hired by John, who was running Northwest Airlines in China. He came on as his marketing man, his right-hand man, just really good, just very eager beaver, you know. And John is trying to tell him about Christ, trying to lead an attractive life, bring him to functions, just, just all the time for two years. Hunter never bingled, nothing happened. Then went to get an MBA, took that GMAT test, and got to Dartmouth, 
got to New Hampshire and uh, met believers in that business school. For two years, there's believers in business school sharing with him Christ. Nothing. Nothing happened for two years. Got a job with Deutsche Bank on in Wall Street. That summer, he's just waiting to go to school. He's wandering around the U.S. Something, something hits him. I mean, he just realized, you know, it really is true. God is right. And uh, it's overwhelming uh, power to, 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 to just give his life to Jesus. He wanders around Washington, D.C., finds a church, walks in, says, look for the pastor, sits to the pastor. pastor says, oh, sit down. Yeah, we got this fellowship. We got this uh, Friday night group. We got young adults. And, you know, what's your profession? We've got, you know, Sunday morning. We've got this camp. The guy said, no, listen, I just want to accept Christ. That's all I want to do. I just want to become a Christian. These kind of pastors, oh, okay, yeah, let's, let's do that. <laughs> and, you know, that goes to work. It's uh, September 2001. Looks out of his window. He sees a plane going to the World Trade Center. He goes, goes downstairs, and he and his assistant... And this thing starts collapsing on him. He starts turning to run. He told me that uh, he looked back. He saw that cloud coming at him, and he's running as hard as he could. And he could not outrun that cloud. And he thought he was going to die. But he says the strangest thing. You know, I just, I wasn't afraid. You know, all my life I've been a fearful kid. I just wouldn't jump out of trees or wouldn't jump into lakes. It was really strange. I, know, I knew the Lord was with me. I was not afraid, and I thought I was going to die, but I was not afraid. It's a great story. And a poor pastor, you think he's a great evangelist, you know. This, this guy got dropped in his lap. There's four years of lay work behind him. A pastor in Germany, and just as I am. I mean, it's really a lot of lasagna, a lot of love, basically. The ministry of evangelism is a by-faith venture from start to finish. You do not know which part you play. You do not know when the scale is ready to tip. It's all by faith. Your job is to be willing to add a little weight to a person's life. In fact, you look for places to add weight in a person's process. It is God who orchestrates the path to belief. It is God who ultimately gets the credit. Hey, he's just merely cutting us in on the action. God tells us in his word, 1 Corinthians 3, 6 to 9. You just listen to this. I planted, Apollos watered, God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters, they're one, but each one will receive his own reward. There's that word again, reward. According to his own labor, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. God's plan is to reach a diverse world through the diversity of his people. And there are people out there that only you, that you are the perfect person for. The process of conversion is a very complicated thing. It takes a little psychology, a little sociology, a little theology, some social skills, and a pinch of election. And the point is, we don't have to worry about having all the skills to do the job. And that's the beauty of body life. I mean, you may look at a preacher and say, 
I can't do that. And that may be true, but God does not expect us all to be the same. Your job is to identify your sphere of influence and work right there. As I said, you can reach people that no one else can. Now, methodology, MGM, the model is Jesus. The goal is just add weight. The methodology is, my best passage is Colossians 4, 2 to 6. In the interest of time, let me read Colossians 4, 2 to 6 to you. Devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God may open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been in prison in order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom and toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with MSG. No, it says seasoned as it were with salt. In, our, in my version, it's MSG, sorry. Make you thirsty, but still taste good. So that you may know how you should respond to each person. And I, but I think it's helpful to think about this methodology for evangelism as the hunt. As a hunt. When we're doing evangelism, it's the hunt. When we're doing discipleship, it's a troll. Putting out the bait. But listen to this. Now, I was privileged. Uh, do you all, some of you know Ford Madison? Uh, he was had a slot, a lay slot, this big-time conference for world evangelization. It's Lausanne 2. I mean, everybody, but everybody's there. If you didn't have a card saying that you were big-time, you couldn't even get into this place, 4,500. I got in because there was a little small lay track, Tuesday to third day, third talk or something, right behind the South Koreans who were talking about how important the church was. Oh, my word. Good thing we got behind them. But anyway... Uh, and Ford said, ye, you know, you're the right age, you're a broker, you're the right color, so I want you to give it to him, talk about the lay ministry, I want you to put the turd in the punch bowl. <laughs> I said, the turd in the punch bowl, I hadn't heard that one, that's a Texas expression, but... I got the idea, the turn and punch bowl. Okay. I think at the same time, I'll read to you how we did it. I'm going to read to you. This is how we did it. So he said, have you ever noticed how differently frogs and lizards acquire their food? The frog just sits and gets on a lily pad. He waits. And after a while, the insect will fly close to him. And he goes, sticks out his tongue, zaps it. That's how he eats. On the other hand, the lizard, he cannot do what the frog does. If he did, he'd starve to death. Instead, he cannot afford to go out there, sit and wait, food to come to him. But instead, he must go out into his world, know where the food is to be found, and hunt. Now, the vocational Christian work in this analogy is the frog. He goes to seminary, gets his degree, hangs his shingle out. People know that he's in the business of meeting spiritual needs. Ministry comes to him. Before long, he's got his hands full. And, uh, and some of the frogs, they're such big frogs, when they come to town, you gotta, they got to hide in hotel rooms because otherwise they just get swamped. 
lay person, on the other hand, he's a lizard. In that for him to have a ministry, he has to learn to hunt. Now, I come here, I'm functioning as a frog. I did nothing to deserve this. Come up here, and all of a sudden, I got a room of 100 guys. I can minister to them, but I didn't do anything. That's what a frog does. You guys come to my town. I put out a notice, come here, so-and-so. I don't think anybody's going to be interested. You know, they just, nobody cares. So you have to learn to hunt. Ministry does not come seeking you out. Instead, like the lizard, he must move around in the environment that he lives in. Establish friendships. Earn the right to be heard. Be gentle. And in other words, he must learn to hunt. The main problem today in world evangelization is the underutilization of the lay person. Part of the problem, of course, not the entire problem, is with the VCW. He has a tendency to hog the show, make it revolve around himself. The lay person looks at the professional and his gifts and his productions and says to himself, I could never be as great as that. And you know he's probably right, but that's only as long as he defines the ministry in frog terms. See, but there are so many sad lizards out there who think that they have a ministry, they must act like a frog, teach the Bible in public, speak at gatherings. That's a limited view of the ministry. The lizard needs to know how God can use him as the lizard that he is. And when he catches that vision, learns that evangelism is not an event, but a process, learns to love and serve people, following the example of Jesus Christ. More importantly, he gets a taste of the joy of seeing his friend find the Savior. He gets hooked on ministry. He'll never give it back to the VCW. In Amsterdam, 1986, Stephen Olford declared, the days of mass evangelism are over. And perhaps what he meant by that was the job of world evangelization is more and more becoming a lizard's job. The lizard represents the church's contact point with the world as he lives and works in it. He understands it and is familiar with his ways. When he is differentiated by his faith, the world takes note. And most importantly, lizards go where frogs cannot go. Solomon knows that it is lizards, not frogs, that you find in king's castles. It's also lizards and not frogs that get into these closed countries, the 1040 window. When nations close their doors to vocational Christian workers, they will never be able to keep the lizard out. And we are in a time of a second reformation. First one put the Bible in the hands of the ordinary believer. Second one puts the ministry in the hands of the ordinary believer. Now, the remaining time... I want to move to this methodology. And I've got six points here. This is the micro. Now, again, this is not gospel. I mean, just some ideas, a rough outline. Again, as, as McGinty says, I mean, it's easy. You just give you a little rough methodology. You don't have to follow it. It goes like this. One, assess your sphere of influence. Two, you sow broadly. Three, you build bridges. And then you four, you earn the right to be heard. And five, you ask for the order. And six, you got to use the concept of the divine appointment. I'm going to go over these. Assess your sphere of influence. Starts with prayer. Ask God to open hearts like Paul did, knowing how and knowing when. You watch, you watch people that God gives you in your job. You look around. Who is it? And, and also the people you have natural influence over. Obviously your kids, your employees. 
You sow broadly. This is the lifestyle part. One guy, one kid told me that it takes, takes him less than five minutes to get to the topic on, on, on his faith. Uh, sometimes uh, uh, I just say, uh, if a guy makes a mistake and says, how are you? Then it's over. All he has to do is say, how are you? I got so many ways. Man, this last weekend I was in Colorado. can't believe this weekend. There's a hundred guys there. You know what we talked about? We talked about how much Jesus Christ has meant to us. These regular guys, you know. These guys are from all walks of life. And I can just start right into it. He's, whoa, you know. And of course, I want to stop a little bit and see if the guy's picking it up. He's going, forget it. I didn't want to ask you how you are anymore. But So you just don't dump on the guy. I mean, you can go... Well, I've been reading a book this morning. It's called The Diary of Some Desperate Man. Anyway, this book is amazing. Just the other day, I was reading about competition. You know, I'm a competitor. Just go right into it. You can slow down. Have you, you ever thought about competition? Give a, give a guy a chance to talk back, you know? And there's, you know, I, get, I can get a route through my wife. Because when, when, when it comes on to marriage, I go into it. It wasn't always that way. Man, we were, I can tell you horror stories about how horrible was of course now that God has converted my wife now it's possible to be married to her but before you know, <laughs> there's all kinds of ways to start if the guy makes a mistake I mean whatever different ways to do it you build bridges build bridges you make the most of every opportunity you do things that are relationship in nature you meet him on his turf you know, when a non-Christian meets a Christian, somebody's going to be uncomfortable. You come from different cultures. Why make him uncomfortable? Why put him through what happens in your church? Such a, I can barely take it myself, but uh, how can you put that guy through that? And uh, so let, your, let you, you be the one that's uncomfortable. Be on his terms. Spend time with him. Share your life with him. Got into trading ukuleles on eBay. Uh, with one guy and stamp collecting. Not something I really am into, but, you know, I had a ukulele, so Martin, you guys trading it. And then we earn the right to be heard. Step four, we assess your sphere of influence, and we sow broadly, build bridges, then earn the right to be heard. First Peter 3.15, always be ready to give a defense for the hope that's within you. Anyone who asks you, of course, with gentleness and reverence, Demonstrate you care, you love and serve them. This is pre-evangelism. Actions speak louder than words. It's a, ta- it's a process that takes a long time. But you conduct your life in such a way as to raise questions. Somebody said that this weekend. You know, uh, the way you relate with your kids. I like to think of that of a song, a lizard song, as a Ghostbuster song. Now, a lot of you guys are not old enough to remember the Ghostbusters, but that's a great song. It goes, do you who are you going to call? The Ghostbusters. When this happens, you know, who are you going to call? The Ghostbusters. And I like to think about who are you going to call? You're going to call your buddy. You're going to call your layman. You're going to call that lay lizard. When the roof caves in on you, and, it, and as Gail Jackson said, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. You find out your wife's got cancer. A partner in an accounting firm get, and partner's getting laid off. Your kid goes, your kid goes bad on you. Who are you going to call? Are you going to call the pastor? You're going to call the, the lay lizard. He's going to get the call. And uh, you got to be ready. At Goldman Sachs, we remember these phone calls. 
phone calls. We're sitting there by the big telephone with all these buttons. And the call comes in, a guy calls up and says, hey, what do you think of the Broncos this weekend? You know, this is like, oh, there's something's going on. Said, oh, I don't know, it's what the spread is, you know. And he says, what do you think? And we're just talking. But something is going on there. Something's behind the call. And that's the lizard's call because we're ready for that call. We've been working hard for this call. You know, he says, hey, what's going on in the market? He's a buyer, he's a seller. Oh, just, well, we're seeing some stuff going on in technology. He says, oh, yeah, what about, he's probably IBM. He's going to sell IBM. He's a seller, you know. And so we're just talking, but we're listening for the inquiry. He doesn't want to reveal his hand to you, the sleazebag on the other end of the phone. But this, you know, but he is dancing. And these guys will dance, and, you know, but actually they're coming to you. and You're, you're open. Come. I want to hear. I got all the time in the world. Are you busy? No, I'm not busy. What do you got? And, that, and that's the call. That's the business. That's the payoff. That's what you've been working for. And then we got to ask for the order. As Winston says, we've got to risk the relationship. And things are getting busier and busier. And this relationship evangelism is taking way too much time. And sometimes as we get to be older farts, we just, we just got to clear these guys out. Got to move them. I mean, how many rounds of golf does it take before you ask for the order? You got to up the ante on these guys. And uh, I mean, at, at Goldman Sachs, we had I had a filing system. We called this moves management. So broadly, just get these guys' names and telephone numbers in the box and meet them. Read about them in the Wall Street Journal. If the guy takes your call, he moves over here. If the guy will have lunch with you, you move over here. If the guy will let you present a stock idea to him. He will move over here. He is moving through your boxes. I don't say that you should do this in your uh, in your hunt, but you mentally you're going to risk this relationship, and you're going to tell this guy, you know, this is we're going to lay it on the line. That's what it's about. It's the only reason to have this relationship. E squared is that uh, I, I I want I am loving you and. Uh, because I want to share Christ with you. And so we got, we got to move these guys through it. And then we've got to remember the concept of the divine appointment. The divine appointment, you know what that is. God is orchestrating the whole thing. And uh, Walt and I were talking this morning how just the fact that we met was the divine appointment. It changed my life. And they are out there. It's all set up. And it, you know what it's like? It's like having... Being an investment portfolio advisor and having inside information, man, it makes the job a lot easier when you have the inside, uh, inside information. And remember what Jesus said in that great passage on evangelism. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm going to be with you always. Even if you go to the ends of the earth, I'm going to be with you always. And it is a partnership from beginning to end. I mean, it's incredible when he is working with you. You do not do it alone. Your job is not to produce product. Be faithful to opportunities. And it makes a huge difference. When you go out that door, you ask, you pray. You ask for alertness. Be in tune. Wake up. This is the day. This is the day the Lord has made. This is the day somebody's going to bingo. Walt Henderson says evangelism is the only business where the salesman is paid on the basis of the number of calls he makes, not on the closes. 
I mean, doesn't it help to think it's process instead of product? All you do is just add weight. You do not know the tail's gonna, when that scale's going to tip. And here's how we put it at CEA. This is our manifesto, Chinese Entrepreneur Association. This is our goal, to bring people into a closer, more vital relationship with Jesus Christ, whether it is to introduce them to Jesus for the first time or to encourage the deepening of that relationship where it already exists. Winston, sorry, typical oriental. We just ripped off E squared with our statement right there. But that's, that's, that's worth copying, I tell you. But the scary part of it, the scary part of evangelism is that, you know, whether we do it or not, is I think that God's getting a reading on us. I mean, on what kind of Christian we are. I don't have any license to be right, but it's my thesis that the responsibility for evangelism is a component that God gets a reading on our lives. It's kind of like a diagnostic test for God of sorts. I don't have any license to be right, but that's how I think about it. I mean, this gets us back to the, what I was talking about. Why does God do it this way? Why does God use us? I mean, he, as I said, he, there's so many better ways to get people, all of them, on their knees. But it's up to us. Instead, instead, he makes it up to us to find the elect. Kind of like a big Easter egg hunt. Go out there and find the elect. And maybe this is what we're, what we're talking, what Wist is talking about. About last night when he says, are you a sheep or are you a disciple? Maybe evangelism, the degree that we're involved, the degree that we have a heart for it, that is a differentiating, differentiating agent. And you, you may say, Carl, I do evangelism. Sure. You know, I do a little bit here, I do a little bit there. I don't know, I think that's like, I call that pro bono evangelism. I've had lawyers, believe it or not, do pro bono stuff for me. You know, they, they're, they're really willing to help. But when they get a big deal, and Morgan Stanley comes to them and says, can you put together the contract for this deal? Fee is $800,000. I don't think they're going to do any pro bono stuff for you. They say, call you up and say, listen, like something big's come up. I've got to drop your thing in a minute. We should not be pro bono with God when we do evangelism. Something big comes up, we just drop it. We just do it in and out. We just go in and out like a season. Some heard people say, you know, i got to get back to doing that. I, I used to do it. We just go in and out. It's not part of our lifestyle. Now, is this stuff diagnostic? Is this stuff really critical? Again, I've been thinking a lot about this. There's just a hundred ways that evangelism tells a lot about who we are. Let me give you my top ten favorites. Number one, it's a reading on your heart. Evangelism is essential for developing your heart. It gives you a heart for the lost. It expands your heart. Self-centered people focusing on themselves shrinks your heart. Number two, gives you a reading on your faith. Evangelism, evangelism gives God a reading on your faith. Is your religion more than a cultural item? Are you just... Christian, because you're an American, can you witness to a Chinese person? I mean, you cannot give away what you do not have yourself. 
You can't get excited about something that you yourself don't find attractive. Number three, evangelism drops money into your eternal bank account. I mean, doing evangelism will impact your eternity. There's two parables. Luke 19, 11 to 27, parable of the minus. Luke 16, 1 to 13, parable of the unjust stewards. These two parables link your faithfulness to evangelism with what your eternity will be like in heaven. Very obscure, mind-boggling that there is a link between your faithfulness to this E-squared stuff and how you will spend eternity. Not to mention Mark chapter 8, 38. Another link. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. Now that is it's not a nice verse to do. I shouldn't have done that to you. That is nasty. Number four. It's a reading on your focus. Your hope. Evangelism is key to developing your focus. Focuses on God's business. Matthew 6, 21-23. Usually they're not the, not the verses that are read when you're in Matthew 6. For where your treasure is, there will your, lamp, your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Therefore the light that is in you is darkness. How great is that darkness. A focus. Focus of your life. What you're seeing when you see people. Do you see a client? Do you see someone that Christ died for? Focus on God's business. Evangelism is related to giving you... The mind's eye, God's mind, God's eye. It's the difference between being a front-line troop and a back-line troop, rear-end troop. I like the word rear-end troop. You interview the front-line troops, you say, how's it going? He says, we need ammo, we need air cover. You know, we need to establish our perimeter, you know. We need defenses. Talk to the back-line, the rear-end troop, you know, how's it going? You know, the weather is bad. You know, the mail comes slow. Soup is cold. The showers, the water pressure is down. Yeah. It's in the same army. One is, one is a soldier. I don't know what the other one's doing. <laughs> Number five, it gives you a reading on your pride levels. Doing evangelism keeps your pride in check. Fears you have. Fear of rejection. It's related to your pride, is it not? Proud people don't get their hands dirty in messy business of the witnessing. Proud people hold themselves back. Proud people are afraid to stand up for Jesus. I mean, how much does your pride, all of us have it, hurt your evangelism record? The mandate to do evangelism is really an expression of God's grace. My next four, my next five is really, really the, the injunction, the 
commanding you to do evangelism because God loves you. That's why the plan is not to do signs and wonders because he cuts you in on the action. It's an expression of God's grace. Number six, doing, an evangel- doing evangelism is an antioxidant against sin. I mean, if you're, willful, if you're in willful sin, it will kill your heart for evangelism. No power from the Holy Spirit. No desire to be God's person. On the other hand, you get back in the saddle when you go out and share your faith. You get back to health. Evangelism, number seven, is essential to spiritual health. Wal Hendrickson told me that when he was in seminary, things got so dry and dead. Spend, try to spend one day a week share his faith on campus. Keep himself fresh. It's an exercise of God's given right to do evangelism. It does wonders for your prayer life. Evangelism, that's spiritual health. Kicks in your prayer life. Number eight, evangelism is key to spiritual development. To your own development. I mean, we need to do an evangelism workout. We do physical workouts. We've got to take you to a trainer. Give, get a diagnostic on you. You need a little social skills. You know, you're a little bit self-centered here. You're talking too much. You've got to lead an attractive life rather than an unattractive life. You could know the scriptures a bit better. Know that Roman road. Get with McGinty. He'll explain to you the Roman road. It's easy. You know, uh, how many non-Christian contacts do you have? Your cocoon, you're wrapping yourself in a cocoon until you get suffocated. You learn to pray the ten most wanted list. You know, learn the ten most common objections to the Christian faith. You know, you get this, get this workout. This is, this is developing you to a man of God. Number nine. Evangelism is an exercise of dependence. As Walt said, path toward God is dependence. Path path away from God is independence. Doing evangelism keeps you dependent. And lastly, evangelism means you start taking on the family likeness. I mean, as, as, as Gail says, the family likeness. Gail says, Moses knew God's ways. Israel knew the acts. Join the family business. Get the same heart. Hang around with Jesus. Start talking to him more. Doing evangelism helps you know God's ways. You don't read about the acts of God. I mean, you actually be part of the acts of God. That's amazing. So, if we got this, took this stuff seriously and picked it up, can imagine what this room can do. I mean, we, we'd have to go to New Mexico to run it on the conference because, you know, if everybody brought one or two guys here next year, couldn't handle it. But I want to caution one thing, and that is, you cannot contribute to the work of God. This is what Walt's helped me on. Something that I need to remind myself. When you, when, you, when you start thinking you're contributing to the work of God, you start using and abusing people to get your agenda done. Best passage on this is Esther 4. I'm going to close with this. 
Esther, where are you? Esther 4.14. Mordecai said, got to help us out, Esther. We're in trouble. We need you. But don't worry. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from someplace else. You and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty at such a time as this. We have attained our position. We are living in the last period before Jesus is coming back. We don't need to do it. We, his not, does not need us. We're not, if we're not going to participate, get somebody else. But it's our privilege. I don't know why he does He doesn't need us. But he tells us to do it. We must have that balance. It's like, it's like an investment deal. We don't need you in this investment deal. We got the money raised. I put an extra ten grand. We cut you in on the action. You know, just participate. Participating reveals a lot. It reveals faith. It reveals heart. But we cannot take ourselves too seriously. And uh, that's why we're together. I think I'm done. Am I done? Do we have time for a question? One or two? If not, we'll just quit then. Okay. Let's, let's just pray then. Lord, we're in a quandary as we contemplate this double E stuff. It's a right and a responsibility. Expression of your grace on us. You cut us in on this action. But uh, it's also a sign of, uh, as we realize our hope, what we're living for. Well, we have our own businesses, but we put our businesses under yours, your business, what Jesus came to die to earth for. So help us as men to get our priorities straight to put you first to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness to have faith that everything else can be added to us it's amazing you trust us with this job we're very grateful we're not cut out for this somebody else could do it better In our feeble way we just we're there we punched our clock. We're, we're there. We're your workmen. We're showing up for work. You promised, Lord, to be with us. Counting on that. And thank you for this time that we can think about this. In Jesus' name. Amen.